0: A few weeks ago, uh, Davina and I had the opportunity to go to Salt Lake City uh, to see Luke and Karen and see Plant for the Gospel and kind of catch up with them out there. And one of the neat things uh, about that trip was Davina has never seen real mountains, and so we uh, saw the mountains around Salt Lake City. And we had a really fun trip in a 15-passenger van up the side of a mountain. And it went from two-lane paved highway to sort of one-and-a-half-lane paved highway, to no pavements, to back-and-forth gravel roads, to not much gravel, more potholes. And the guy driving the van, he liked to talk while he was driving the van, and so he would talk to us in the back of the van and not watch the road. So we had a great time. We had a great time. He assured us all the way up this mountain, though, that it was going to be the most spectacular view. We were going to get up on top of this mountain. We were going to look down into one of the largest open-pit copper mines in all of North America. It goes down one mile into the earth. We'd, so we'd stand on top of this mountain. We able to look down into this mine. We'd also have the whole view of Salt Lake City, the whole valley, all the way down to Provo and BYU, all the way up past uh, Salt Lake Uh, City into Salt Lake, and then if you look to the west, you would see the Great Salt Flats. That was what we were promised. As we're driving in this 15-passenger van, bouncing around, uh, I had many thoughts running through my head at that point. One of them was, if the van goes off this cliff, will I die in the van or be thrown out and die outside the van? Uh, Another thought I had was, will my hand ever recover from my wife squeezing it to death, but we were promised this amazing view at the end of this journey. So we kept looking forward to this. So despite what was going on, despite how I felt, despite the sheer drop-off, I was looking forward to this moment. Now... How does that lead into Habakkuk? Habakkuk is going to lead us through this kind of thinking where he knows something is out there. He knows what is true. He knows there is a promise. And yet, there is, there is dark and deep waters that he is going through. Not Not bumping along in a 15-passenger van, like real life catastrophic things going on. So, let's just jump in, because that's how we're going to have to get through this. All right, so let's jump in, look at Habakkuk 1, and we have this at the beginning of Habakkuk, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. All right, one thing about Habakkuk the prophet that we need to know about this man, Habakkuk, is this is the only time in Scripture that we know about Habakkuk. We don't have another passage of scripture that we can run to, but Habakkuk does something here that most prophets don't do. Usually we see the prophet, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, or the Lord said, and so then the prophet speaks what the Lord says. But Habakkuk, the prophet, is going to initiate this book, he's going to initiate a conversation with God. And so, we're going to find out that Habakkuk is the one with a question for God rather than God questioning what is going on with Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Habakkuk is going to be the one asking the questions here. One thing we need to know about Habakkuk the book then is that it's actually a dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and God. Again, usually we see a one-way monologue, God says to the prophet, and the prophet just recites whatever it is to the people. But Habakkuk is talking to God, and God is going to answer back. And so the book of Habakkuk goes like this. Habakkuk asks a question, God gives an answer. Habakkuk is astounded by that answer, so he asks a second question, and God gives a second answer. And then chapter 3 of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's psalm of praise to God. So what you get in the book of Habakkuk is not like a nice uh, through narrative where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's confusion. There's more confusion. There's a lot of confusion. And then Habakkuk is going to land in a place of prayer and praise to God. So as we go through it, you're going to feel some of this tension And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because that's how life is. So we have this. We have the prophet. We have the book. So let's look at Habakkuk's first complaint. How can God see evil and not act to bring judgment? Look at verse number two of chapter one. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted." What is it that Habakkuk is seeing? Well, let's, let's have a couple orientation points here. Where does Habakkuk live? What we know from the book is that he lives in the nation of Judah. Naturally then, where is Habakkuk seeing violence in verse 2, iniquity in verse 3, destruction in verse 3, strife and contention in verse 3? Where is he seeing those things? Habakkuk is looking around Judah, the nation where he lives, and he's seeing these things not in another nation, not somewhere where they don't believe God and know about God, he's seen this in the people who call themselves Israelites. It's God's people doing these things one to another. It gets even worse there in verse number 4. He says the law is paralyzed, or it's rendered ineffective or impotent in restraining wickedness. The wicked actually surround the righteous. They outnumber the righteous. The wicked in the society are surrounding the righteous of the society. They're, they're outflanking them. And this gives us a glimpse of the upside-down world in which Habakkuk lives. Justice never goes forth, or justice goes forth perverted. It goes forth twisted. And This sounds like a place in which evildoers are not held accountable and the ones trying to do right are punished. And Habakkuk knows, just like you and I know inherently, that this has to be offensive to God. And so Habakkuk's question is, how long will God allow this to go on? Today we might ask, how long will God let lawmakers legislate evil? By rebranding it, women's reproductive rights? How long will God let sex tra- traffickers and pornographers exploit women? How long will God let profiteers create addictive products and slap a warning label on to assuage their conscience? How long will God let religious wolves greedily devour the flock to line their own pockets with the prophets? It's not hard to imagine. Habakkuk's groaning in his time because we groan in our time. So, what is, Habakkuk's, <clears throat> what is Habakkuk's initial question? How long do I have to cry out for help to you, Yahweh? When will you answer? At what point are you going to step up and act? Now, this question is not just a random question that Habakkuk just decided to throw out one day. This question is based on the character of God. And Habakkuk knows it from the law. He talked about the law just a second ago, that the law is paralyzed. But the law gives us in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the Lord's name. The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But this same God, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, a holy and just and righteous God will by no means let the wicked go unpunished. God does not delight in wickedness. He hates evildoers. He loves righteousness and fair balances. He's the judge of all the earth, and will not the judge of all the earth do right? So, verses 2 through 4 are Habakkuk's initial question to God. How can God see evil and not act to bring justice? Yahweh, you see evil. When will you bring your justice? So, let's see God's response. God's first answer. Verse number five. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So far, so good. Observe the words that uh, pique Habakkuk's interest. Verse number five, the word look. The word see, the word wonder, be astounded. Habakkuk is told to start paying attention. Why? Because you you better get ready to be blown away, to be flabbergasted, to be dumbfounded, to be stupefied, to be utter and completely discombobulated. Why? <laughs> because Yahweh is doing something. He's doing something so unfathomable that if Habakkuk was told beforehand, he would never believe it. It's unimaginable. It will blow his mind. So, let's pause for a moment before we read on. We, like Habakkuk, know the works of God. What could, be, what could we expect that is really unexpected? Well, what is something that God has done that we could compare it to? How about fire and brimstone? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed that way, so it's not unimaginable. The ground opening up and swallowing the unrighteous? Well, it happened to Korah and his rebellious followers in the desert. How about swallowed by the Red Sea? Well, Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies, that's old news. How about surrounded by an invisible army of the Lord? Well, that's what happened with Elisha. So, what awesome, amazing justice could God be bringing that's more unimaginable than than those things? All right, verse number six. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Let me give you another name for the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. God's answer is the Babylonians. Now, if you don't know much about the Babylonians, During this time period, you may be forgiven for thinking, well, these Babylonians must be righteous, God-fearing people who will bring about justice and rescue the righteous from the wicked. And if you're thinking that, you're absolutely wrong. Look at the rest of verses number 6 through 11, because God describes the Babylonians, the nation He will use. Verse number 6, He says, they're bitter and hasty. Again in verse 6, they steal other people's homes. Verse 7, fear and dread is what they spread. Verse 7 again, they're a law unto themselves. Verse 7 and 8, they advance swiftly, unimpeded to attack. Verse 9, they eagerly anticipate violence. Verse 9 again, they're violent slavers. Verse 10, they're proud of their military might. And verse 11, in fact... Their military might is their God. So, let's summarize the text to see what has happened so far. Habakkuk sees wickedness and unrighteousness in Judah and asks the holy and just Yahweh this question, when will you bring justice? And God's answer that Habakkuk would never imagine in all his born days is the Babylonians. More specifically, Yahweh's answer is to tell Habakkuk, just you wait I'm sending the wicked and unjust, violent and enslaving, arrogant and idolatrous Babylonians to punish Judah. Now, I hope at this point you're feeling a little uncomfortable with what God has answered to Habakkuk. And you should be. To correct the wicked among the people of God, God is going to use a much more wicked nation. And if this leaves you dissatisfied, then you and Habakkuk are in the same mind. And so Habakkuk gives a second complaint. Verses 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil... And cannot look at wrong why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he you make mankind like the fish of the sea like crawling things that have no ruler he the wicked man he brings all of them up with a hook he drags them out with his net he gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk is utterly confused. But there's three things here that we want to notice in Habakkuk's second complaint. The first thing is that it starts with God's eternal nature. It starts with Habakkuk acknowledging God's eternal nature, which means that that Judah, specifically the righteous in Judah, will not be wiped out. Why? Why is that? Well, there's a deep-seated faith in the attributes of God, specifically in His everlasting being, His eternal nature, which relates to His everlasting promises. Promises given to Israel and Judah, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Habakkuk knows that if the promise giver is eternal, then those promises are eternal. He believes in who God is, which gives him hope in what God has promised. But Habakkuk does not stop there. God cannot simply let the wicked nation of Babylon wipe out Judah and then Babylon get off free as a bird. Habakkuk reminds Yahweh how the Babylonians operate. Wicked Babylonians capture others like fish. They exult in cruelty, and then these wicked Babylonians worship their nets or the things that they catch people with, and they get rich and they live luxuriously. Now, it's about the Babylonians, but it's not really just about the Babylonians. The Babylonians can be seen as placeholders here for all wicked men everywhere. Wicked mankind the world over functions this way. The wicked capture the innocent. They rejoice in violence. They inflict, they, they idolize their way of life, and they live fat and happy. So Habakkuk asks... Number two, can wicked men continue to perpetrate cruelty forever with no divine judgment? Can wicked men continue to perpetrate cruelty forever with no divine judgment? It's not just that the Babylonians are going to do this to Judah. It's that the Babylonians have already done this to many other nations, and before the Babylonians it was the Assyrians, and before the Assyrians it was another nation, and before that nation it was another nation. It's a bloody, vicious, never-ending parade of violence. But remember back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the wickedness is not just out there. The wickedness is here. So, Habakkuk's question is, Yahweh, when will the wicked, out there and here, when will the wicked be held accountable? When will they be stopped? We have one verse at the beginning of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After Habakkuk registers his complaint, then Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watchpost." station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is Habakkuk's expectation, number three. This is Habakkuk's expectation. Habakkuk posts himself like a lookout on the wall of the city to see what Yahweh will do to answer his question. And you may be wondering, why why in the world is this included? Why does it matter that Habakkuk is going to stand and look for God's answer. Well, Habakkuk ends his second complaint in anticipation that God hears and cares and God can and will answer him. Habakkuk has been operating in this way since the beginning of the book. Otherwise, why would he even direct his question to God to begin with? But now it's stated boldly an assurance that God hears and will answer. How did Habakkuk begin a second question or complaint to Yahweh? With an affirmation of God's eternal nature. And now, Habakkuk remembers and trusts in what he knows about God's person. God himself is eternal, therefore his promises are eternal. Therefore, God, therefore Habakkuk knows that Judah will not be fully wiped off the face of the earth. Habakkuk remembers and trusts in what he knows about God's promises. Now, let's pause just for a moment. I don't know where you're at, but I'm guessing there are some of you who feel the weight of a ex burden, the realization that evil people seem to be winning in this world. But there's others of us who are going through difficult times, not necessarily evil people, but evil circumstances. For some, it's the evils of cancer. For some, it's the evils of growing old. For some, it's the evils of loneliness. Or others, the evils of a loss of a loved one. And you ask what Habakkuk models. God, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. But if Habakkuk is your model for the question, your your model for the answer, your model for waiting for it is also Habakkuk. Does God hear, see, and care? Well, notice what Habakkuk models for us. Habakkuk brought his complaint to God. If Habakkuk really thought that God did not hear, see, or care, why would he ask in the first place? Look at the names Habakkuk has used for God. Chapter 1, verse 2, he uses Yahweh or Lord. If you're looking at your ESV, it's all capitalized and that's the covenant name for God. Habakkuk is using he's using a covenant name knowing that God himself has made a covenant and will keep it. Chapter 1 verse 12, Habakkuk addresses God as my holy God. Habakkuk knows God as a personal being, my God. And he affirms that God is perfect and separate. He's holy, he's other. He's not a creature. Verse number 12, again, Habakkuk addresses God as the rock. God is steadfast and unchanging. He's a refuge in the midst of storm. So Habakkuk models for us. He models that God, he he models trust in God's ability to hear, see, and care. Instead of running from God, Habakkuk is running to God. The only one Habakkuk can trust to get him out of this mess is the one who providentially put him into the mess to begin with. So, now we, now we come to God's second answer. Chapter 2, verse 2, "'The Lord answered me, write the vision.'" Make it, plain, <clears throat> make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, there's lots of discussion about these verses because they're hard to translate, but essentially the gist of these two verses are that there is a certainty that God will do what he says he will do. What Yahweh says, what God says, will come to pass. So don't be fooled by delay or a long waiting period. It will happen. Now look at 2 verse 4, chapter 2 verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Well, whose soul is lifted up or whose soul is proud or puffed up? It's the Babylonian. But again, the Babylonian is a placeholder for all wicked men. All wicked men trust only in themselves. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. they are law unto themselves. Verse number 11 of chapter 1, we were told that they, their own might is their God. So chapter 2, verse 4 begins this way, Behold, his soul, the wicked man's soul, is puffed up. up, It is not upright within him. But look at the last half of verse 4, because here's the contrast. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous or the just person lives not by trusting in himself, but he lives by faith. So here's the million-dollar question. What is faith? What is faith? If the one whose soul is lifted up trusts only in himself, the one doing the right thing, the one who's righteous, then he doesn't trust in himself, but he trusts where? He trusts in God. And how does the righteous person know to trust God? God has revealed it. God has declared it. God has spoken. Faith, then, is taking God at His word. It's not complicated. If God is who He says He is, if God has promised to do a thing, then the righteous person should act, should order his life, should live in accordance to who God is and what He has said. And that is faith, to believe God to be true and to live life according to His Word. But if the righteous shall live by faith, is the opposite true? The soul which is lifted up, will it be destroyed? The one who trusts in himself, will that person come to an end? And Habakkuk gives us five woes, five woes that he pronounces over Babylon. Usually a woe is a lament. A couple years ago, uh, we had a men's conference speaker talk on lament. Lament is usually spoken by those who are under great and extreme difficulty. Think of people who are in distress, and they're crying out for salvation. They're crying out for hope. But these woes are not spoken at the time of defeat. These woes are spoken by the captive people who are now taunting the wicked person. So, think of Babylon. Babylon has can't conquered many, many people. And these people are going to rise up. Look at verse number six. Shall not all these all these is talking about the people at the end of verse 5. So, Babylon has conquered all these people. These people will rise up, and they will pronounce a woe. That It's a taunt over Babylon. And these five woes are very… Uh, I mean, they're, they're exactly what Babylon has been doing to others. So, the irony here is that the nations Babylon has conquered will one day pronounce a taunt on Babylon without fear of reprisal, and these conquered people will gaze upon the ruin of the once great empire. So, real quickly, what are the five woes? We can't go through these uh, line by line, but verses 6 through 8, the plunderers will be plundered. The plunderers will be plundered. Verses 9 through 11… There's the, the shame or the public shame for unjust gain. The third woe is the futility of bloodshed and crime. The futility of bloodshed and crime. It comes to nothing. It's all, it's all for nothing. Instead, the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord, will ultimately rule. Verses 15 through 17, the experience of terror for exploitation. The woe is that they will experience terror because of how they have exploited these people. And verse number, f- or the well, woe number five is the senselessness of idolatry, the senselessness of idolatry in verses 18 and 19. Look at verses 18 and 19 just for a moment. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. God is is pointing out the utter foolishness of trusting in idols. This idol has been shaped by a man. It's covered over with silver and gold. And then the man comes to the idol, and he says to the idol, the man says to the idol, awake, arise, do something, tell me what I should do. And God's point is, woe to him who puts his trust in that kind of thing. It's foolishness. But look at verse number 20. Because here the contrast is, I mean, it's exquisite. Unlike the man who makes the idol and then speaks to the idol, look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Who made that temple? God did. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Instead of running your mouth, you should be silent. So here's the one who makes and worships an idol and speaks to the idol, and God is saying, I am the one who makes all things. You should be silent before me. This also captures all of the reactions from verses 6 through 19. All those who are wicked should acknowledge God, his holiness, and its implications for judgment on evil. And all the wicked should cease and desist their activities. So, Habakkuk began his question, how long? Implying that God should show up and show out right now. What are you waiting for? And God's response is that there is a future judgment coming. And both parts of that statement are true. Judgment means the wicked will get what they deserve. But future means, future means that it's not here yet. God sees and cares, and he will bring appropriate judgment for the crimes committed. So be assured, Babylon will not get away with their wickedness. In fact, they will be punished in like kind for their atrocities. God himself takes special umbrage at idolatry. Verse number 14 and verse 20, we see that God's glory and holiness will ultimately prevail. And so all wicked nations, all wicked people will suffer the same fate. They'll all meet the same end. All will, will be subjugated to Yahweh's glory and all will be silent before a holy God. But what of the righteous? So, let's return to verse 4 of chapter 2 just for a second, that the just will live by his faith, or the righteous will live by faith. How then can the righteous person continue on this way of existence? Why not just throw in the towel? Why not just despair? Because the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous person will live by patient, expectant trust in God, to fulfill His Word in His time. But this takes hearing God and believing God, which leads to ordering one's life for God. In Habakkuk, the model for our question, the model for our response, now is the model for our psalm of praise to God. And that's what it, chapter 3 is. <clears throat> So Habakkuk's psalm of praise is chapter 3. We don't again we don't have time to unpack all of the things of chapter 3, but Habakkuk begins with awe of Yahweh because he's heard what Yahweh he's heard about Yahweh, about the covenant keeping God of Israel, and he knows this God's work in the past. Think of the parting of the Red Sea or Mount Sinai. Habakkuk wants those powerful demonstrations of God to come again and save his people. Habakkuk asks God to revive his work. And so Habakkuk reports some of the works that God has done. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is relating to us the appearance of God on Mount Sinai. Verse 5 is a nod to the plague's that were brought on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Verse 11 is an allusion to the victory of Gibeah led by Joshua when the sun and the moon stood still in the sky. Verses 8 and 14 and 15 are talking about the Exodus across the Red Sea and then the entrance into the Promised Land across the River Jordan. These specific instances, plus other reports of Yahweh's greatness, move Habakkuk to praise and awe. God unleashed righteous fury on the wicked like a warrior, and Yahweh defeated the wicked thoroughly and utterly, and this judgment is the salvation of his people. In his wrath on the nations, there was mercy for his people. And that's what we see at the end of verse number two of chapter three. In wrath, Remember mercy. We want this psalm of praise to end in God relenting on the coming destruction of Judah. But it is not so. In fact, Habakkuk feels the terror of the very first answer from Yahweh, that Yahweh will use the Babylonians to destroy the wicked in Judah. So look at verse number 16 of chapter 3. After this great psalm of praise, this is how Habakkuk lands verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk is not paralyzed by fear here. The Psalm chapter 3 has demonstrated Habakkuk's understanding of who God is and what God is doing. And so, along with fear of the coming judgment, of terror of the coming judgment, is faith that the one judging Judah will one day judge the wicked invaders. He continues, look at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So along with the reality of the destruction coming through the Babylonian conquest, Habakkuk models that the righteous will live by faith. And so, Habakkuk's application is our application. The righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk modeled this kind of living. He asked hard questions of God, and yet he still humbly trusted God rather than arrogantly standing in judgment over God. When he received an answer that was difficult, unimaginably difficult, humanly speaking it was inconceivable, he returned to what he knew of God's character— his works, and his word to readjust his perspective to God's perspective. And so, we have the big idea of Habakkuk. And it's the same idea for us. In the midst of my difficult situation, despite my view of circumstances, I will hold on to the person and promise of God. In the midst of my difficult situation, despite my view of circumstances, I will hold on to the person and promise of God. Let me uh, give you four takeaways from the book of Habakkuk. Number one, when we step back and we look at the book of Habakkuk, number one, we can say that, I can confidently say (laughs) that God can handle your questions, especially the hard ones. He can handle your questions. So run to Him. Don't run away from Him. Run to Him. Now, this is not to pretend that His answers will be easy or even desirable. But God has given us His Word, the Bible, and we come to know Him through it. So run to Him. Second takeaway God will judge wicked people, including you and me. So I would say turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. In all the talk of wicked people, we often forget that we ourselves are rightly to be judged by God. Our sins, our lawlessness, our evil sets us against God. We're opposed to Him. And He has every right to judge us. But there's good news. God poured out His wrath on Christ on the cross. Jesus was our propitiation, just a big word that means he took the sa- he was the sacrifice that took all the judgment of God for sin. And you and I can have our sins forgiven if we repent and believe. That's the gospel. Not my righteousness because I have none, but Christ's righteousness for me. In fact, Paul writes about the salvation, and he quotes Habakkuk. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God will judge wicked people. And you and I need to turn to Him in faith, believing what God has said about salvation through Jesus. Third takeaway, God does not promise an easy life for believers. In fact, He promises suffering and persecution. So I would say have faith in Him. Look at Habakkuk's difficulties. An end of prosperity the end of political autonomy, the promotion of the wicked, and God's withdrawal of protection. Those things happened to Habakkuk. And yet it seems like current events. But the author of Hebrews anticipates the difficulties of the life of a believer. And guess who he quotes? He quotes Habakkuk. Hebrews 10:36 through 39. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapter. So, the suffering and the persecution that we face as believers does not cause us to shrink back, but it causes us to put our trust, our faith in Him once again. Difficulties and sufferings reveal what we're really trusting in, ourselves or God. The fourth and final takeaway. The ultimate object of our Christian faith is not a promised state of being or a future glorious circumstance. The ultimate object of our Christian faith is a person, it's Jesus Christ. My hope is not for heaven. My hope is not for healing. My hope is not for a better life. My hope is Jesus Christ. So, our faith rests on the person of Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah that we've been hearing about over and over again in the book of Mark that Pastor Nate has been preaching through. The same Savior whose birth we will celebrate again in just a few weeks, God in the flesh, God in the flesh, it's unimaginable, and yet it's true. Despite our evil circumstances, despite our difficult current experiences, Jesus came in the flesh, died for our sins, and God raised Christ from the dead, providing salvation for all people. Paul relays the news of the resurrection to those at the synagogue at Antioch, and he quotes Habakkuk, Acts 13, 37 through 41. But he, Jesus, but Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, or take care then lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, unimaginable to mankind, is mankind's only salvation. So the question is, then will you live by faith in Jesus Christ? Will you live by faith? Or are the woes of Habakkuk, the promises of coming judgment, are those yours? Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ in faith. Live according to God. Live according to His Word. That is the challenge for us from Habakkuk. Let's pray.